This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for April 13th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Last week, we talked about what might be discussed at the FDA's Vaccine and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee meeting. And today, I'd like to revisit that meeting to think about what we learned and how we might use that knowledge going forward. And to help us with that, I want to introduce Barry Bloom, who's joining us today. Barry has spent his career studying the immunologic basis of vaccines. He's a member of both the National Academy of Sciences and the National Academy of Medicine, the former dean of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and one of the co-authors of a perspective we published today. Barry, we'd like to get your thoughts about the public acceptance, not only of COVID vaccines, but of vaccines in general. Before we get there, though, let's talk about the takeaways from last week's FDA meeting. Eric, as a member of that committee, what did you learn? Steve, I'm going to hit on three points. The first is how long future vaccine development is likely to take. Even though mRNA vaccines can be made much more rapidly than vaccines using more traditional technologies, the estimates from the meeting were that if we were to make a new vaccine directed against a new variant, we'd need to choose the sequence of the antigen in May or latest early June to have a vaccine available in the fall. The idea is that the best chance for a new epidemic variant is to come around when people return indoors so the virus can spread most easily. But realistically, it's likely to be impossible to guess what the next Omicron is going to look like months in advance. So, Eric, I think that you raise a very important point, which is what does it take to make a vaccine? How long does that take? And how has science advanced that art? As we remember, 27 months ago, we identified a novel pathogen causing a severe illness. And 24 months ago, the first in human trials were initiated with a novel technology. That tells us a little bit about what is possible, particularly in the state of much less knowledge about the pathogen and the virus. As we think now about moving forward, given what we've learned over the last two years, as you point out, Eric, to make a new vaccine or a vaccine that's a variation of the current vaccine that we're using with slight modifications of the insert sequence or the antigen used to induce the immune response against the circulating virus. The first and most important thing is identifying the sequence of interest, which means we understand the virus circulating and its risk for ongoing transmission and causing significant disease, somewhat like predicting the weather which is very tricky. Then we need to manufacture that sequence. And that I think we've learned pretty well can be done over weeks, at least with mRNA technology. Then we have to perform an assessment of that new vaccine, both for safety and efficacy. Safety, for the most part, we have a pretty good sense of, given that billions have received the platform. Efficacy is much trickier because to do efficacy trials, it's not so easy. And that takes a lot more time. Maybe we can learn a little bit from influenza and how we qualify a new vaccine each season through an immunologic correlate, such as the HA titer being greater than one to 40 with the new vaccine. So the science to develop that correlate of protection to allow an immunologic surrogate for us to advance a new vaccine strain or sequence, I think is critically important, which means we understand the biology and the implications on disease prevention. 
And then what we're not going to talk about is then how do you go to scale? How do you manufacture to scale and deliver to scale, which is something we've been dealing with for many months now. So I think it's exciting with the new technology and the science, but there is a process, as you point out, Eric, that takes some time that we have to think about carefully as we try to respond to the variants that keep emerging. Lindsay, my real takeaway from this is that we either have to have a faster technology or we need to have a new approach that will produce broader immunity. And I think the latter is more likely to come around soon than the former, simply because the number of steps that you just outlined are really going to limit our ability to produce something in a timely fashion in a way that we can get it out there to limit the spread of a new variant, given the kinetics of disease spread in the most recent outbreak. Eric, you said you took three lessons away from the meeting. What was the second? We heard more about the data from Israel on a fourth dose of vaccine. And in fact, today we published another study, this one from the HMO in Israel, Khalit, which arrived at a similar conclusion to the work that was presented at the meeting. Adding a fourth dose offers about twofold increase in protection against infection over a very short time period in those who've already received three doses. But taken together with the other study, my take is that we're getting only a modest benefit from additional doses, and there clearly are diminishing returns. So Eric, as you point out, these data are very informative, and it's terrific that we're able to have insight about a fourth dose within two to three months of it being launched in a jurisdiction. But it does point out the limitations. These data are a time frame that give us about four weeks of follow-up. That's not a bad thing. In fact, it's a terrific that we're able to have insight that quickly, but we have to remember that has limitations. It's only an insight four weeks after vaccination. And that is a challenge that we're facing today where we're doing and sharing science almost in real time, which is important to inform our response, but is challenging to interpret the data as the data sets become more complete, the interpretations may become more nuanced. And we as a community have to be flexible to understand the evolution of a scientific data set that we are watching in real time. Another issue is we have to pay attention to the numbers and the scale. And if one looks at the x-axis in these graphs in the report that we published today, it becomes very small numbers as we look at different endpoints of relevance. So one needs to pay attention to what is the relative impact and what's the absolute impact. Ultimately, I think we all would agree that receiving a first vaccination is the most important receiving additional vaccinations provide additional protection. But we have to remember that is on top of a background of substantial protection. And then what was the third takeaway? The most impressive facts that I walked away with were those from the CDC that described the benefits of vaccination. We saw a lot of data, but the bottom line is that while vaccines have lost some of their ability to prevent infection, they still impressively protect against severe disease and death. As compared to unvaccinated people, those who received two doses of vaccine were about 11 times less likely to die of COVID-19, while those who received three doses were almost 25-fold less likely to die. So vaccines really, really work. So Eric, I just want to amplify key concepts embedded in your comments. First, first vaccinations are most important. 
Second, pay attention to absolute numbers, not just relative numbers. Third, things that are not as easily assessed in some of the vaccine studies, particularly the booster elements, are the time between vaccinations, the variant of concern that's circulating, the nature of the host and the host risk and immunocompetence. So I think these data are, again, more data demonstrating vaccines work, as you point out, that boosting adds benefit. One of the challenges as we as a community go forward is how we think about boosting. Is it simply a time-dependent function, a number-dependent function, or will we have some immunologic marker that will allow us to guide boosting where we understand increasing risk through decreasing immunocompetence against SARS-CoV-2 and therefore boosting would afford benefit. So I think we're in a terrific place compared to two years ago. I think science can help refine how we do this better, particularly for populations of highest risk. Very exciting, very promising, more work to be done. The reason that we know that vaccines work as in this case, is because we're able to compare rates of death in those who receive the vaccine with rates of death in the large number of those who in this country have not yet been vaccinated. Given the obvious benefits of vaccination, this raises the question of why people are choosing not to be vaccinated. Barry, today you and your co-authors published a piece that considered the lessons we could take away from an earlier public health crisis, tobacco. You point out that at the time of the original Surgeon General's warning, about half of the population of the United States smoked. And that's now down to something on the order of 11%. So what do you see as the similarities and the differences between tobacco and COVID-19? Let me start with why we thought that there were lessons to be learned from two rather different sets of conditions. Clearly, tobacco-related injury and infectious diseases are major public health problems and major causes of death. And we know in both cases, there was very good scientific evidence that smoking caused cancer since 1964. And we know from data that Eric summarized here with Lindsay that vaccines have been enormously effective preventing COVID disease, serious disease, and death. The difference is that the scientific data has not been able to change the behavior of a subset of the population. And some of the reasons for that is that in both cases, there was organized and effective misinformation and disinformation that have driven opposition to public health efforts. The strategy was to attack the data, to attack the safety, to attack science and government to vilify and demonize public health leaders. In the case of tobacco, Surgeon General Everett Koop, and in modern times, Tony Fauci. And the major argument in both cases that it would be important to prevent government from restricting individuals' choice and individual freedom to smoke or take vaccines. In both cases, we know that the best source of valid information to persuade people to stop smoking or to take a vaccine is the trusted physician. And yet we know that not everybody in America has a trusted physician. And that we also know there's a small number of physicians who are involved in profiting in both cases from disseminating misinformation about tobacco and now vaccines. 
And finally, in both cases, ultimately, the attacks on public health and defense of vaccines and tobacco in the public realm were taken to the courts. And in the case of tobacco, the Supreme Court rejected restriction of nicotine in tobacco in 2000. And just this year, OSHA's efforts to mandate vaccines for private employers was rejected by the Supreme Court. So there you've given us a number of similarities. What were the differences? There's some very big differences. The anti-tobacco efforts were driven by industry. The anti-vaccine efforts are driven by multiple political, tribal elements and groups, much less organized, much more difficult to come to grips with. The anti-tobacco efforts driven by advertising in major media everywhere had a huge impact on making people aware of the dangers of smoking at every level. But there were only three major television networks in those days. We have a very limited set of pro-vaccination and proper informations trying to be disseminated in a highly diffuse social media environment. There was a major liability, in fact, the largest liability lawsuit in the history of the country brought by attorneys general for Medicaid costs that were brought upon by allowing smoking to continue. There's nothing comparable to that in the area of vaccines. And finally, it's obvious that interventions to prevent smoking impact chronic disease only after decades where people had anything to see. So that could be stalled out for a long time. In the case of an infectious disease, hospitalization and death after infection occur in a matter of weeks. Hence, there's an urgency in our view to move forward with some sort of a campaign to address the undecideds concerns. And there are undecideds and persuade them it is in their interest to be vaccinated. So I would take home a series of general lessons from this comparison, which I hope are helpful. One is we've learned that scientific evidence alone is not sufficient to change behavior of people and particularly people confused by misinformation on both sides. We learned in the case of tobacco, after years of data which had essentially no impact, two small studies, one from the Harvard School of Public Health, one from Japan, showed that non-smoking spouses of smokers had a higher incidence of lung cancer than non-smoking spouses of non-smokers. That is, people who didn't smoke we're getting cancer because of exposure, involuntary smoking, to people who smoked. And the effects of secondhand smoking were that the public began to understand that one person's actions, exerting their freedom, if you will, endangered other people's lives. And the key to making smoking and vaccination socially unacceptable were the activities of a major campaign to deal with the impact of smoking, and in our case would be vaccination, not just on the individuals exerting their freedom, but on their family members, on their communities, on the country at large. 
everybody who transmits virus is a threat to everyone else. In the case of tobacco, there was finally, after these papers, a major campaign led by the government, led by the major NGOs, led by the Ad Council and private industry and businesses to make smoking in buildings and social gatherings and social spaces unacceptable. There is no such and has been no such organized and funded campaign to get real information on the importance and value of vaccination for their individuals, for families, communities, and to protect hospitals. I would point out in the case of tobacco, there still exists on the CDC website ads on television graphically illustrating the suffering of individual patients with tracheostomies or people who are about to die from lung cancer wishing that they had not smoked. This could be done with COVID patients who often ask to be vaccinated in intensive care wards where it's too late for vaccines to be of any value and indicate that they wish they had changed their minds and had been vaccinated. That could be very helpful. Finally, with the courts being reluctant to restrict people's freedoms and limit what can be done to control behavior at a federal level, what we've learned is that communities are very effective, local television, local media channels, where people can relate to what's happening, what the level of transmission of COVID is, what the level of smoking was, and how many people died in their communities. So we probably could do a better job of focusing our activities on local efforts to get the best information in public health out. So Barry, you've talked about the fact that with tobacco, there were three national networks in terms of providers of information and perhaps misinformation. Today, we are dealing with social media as well. Do you think it's possible to harness these contemporary platforms to present a better public health message? We have to learn how to deal with the new set of social media and be able to use some of the same media that young people particularly are involved with to counteract the effects of misinformation and disinformation. I guess the other lesson is the courts, including the Supreme Court, have not always been helpful to public health efforts to save lives. And hence, we have to focus on individuals, people, and communities. And finally, it's our hope that with sufficient funding and leadership, it will be possible to bend the curve of public minds towards protecting the public health and making small sacrifices for the public good. So Barry, I wanted to touch on one of the items that you mentioned, which is the idea of a public health good in smoking that benefit came from secondhand smoke, uh, the effect on individuals who were, for example, in the same household. In an infectious disease like COVID-19, that of course comes from limiting transmission that vaccines can do. Of course, it's been clear that the vaccines that we have now don't do a great job of limiting transmission for the variants that are present right now. So can we fairly send a public health message that is about the community benefits when we really have rather limited benefits right now from vaccines? I would just question how solid the data are 
of how, as you're asserting, poorly the vaccines affect transmission. And part of it is I'm somewhat skeptical of population studies that show how many people show up in a PCR test as indicating that they may be transmitters. And I would look to a much harder set of data, much more limited, which is transmission in households. And at least before Omicron, the data were quite striking that if you were to study transmission in households, vaccines did a pretty good job of limiting transmission during the period where someone in the household was likely to be highly infectious. Population data do address the issue of how much virus is in somebody's nose. It doesn't address the question as how transmissible it is at any given time and place. So Barry, that was a terrific framing of the comparisons of two different public health catastrophic events, if I can frame it that way, taking place over very different time courses and created by very different forces. Two issues that you point out that I'd like to discuss a little bit with you is one is the role of industry. In the setting of smoking, industry was the creator of the product. While in the setting of vaccines, industry is working in coordination with the public health community. And how does that affect our thinking about the response? And the other is you point out disinformation, misinformation. In the current age of communication and the speed with which we communicate and the number of platforms, how do we deal with the overwhelming amount of information of differential quality and differential motivation as we communicate with each other to try and get it right? Very difficult questions on both sides. In the case of industry, I would say two things. I haven't seen a massive public health campaign for getting the undecided vaccinating and reaching into poor and underserved areas to have access to vaccines coming from the major industries, including Silicon Valley, which controls vast amounts of the public information and social media. Industry could step up in a public way to a much greater extent and at least both fund the public health efforts to provide proper information on risks and also to be more restrictive of misinformation and training the algorithms not to just pick up the latest outrageous comment that gets the most ticks. And they have the ability to do that. And they have, at least in the media industry, have not really done that. The second thing I would say is for those private businesses that would, during the peaks of COVID, wanted to restrict the ability of people to come to work that were not vaccinated. As you know, OSHA brought that as an occupational hazard and the Supreme Court shot that down, even admitting that it was a big problem from a public health point of view, but they were overreaching their congressional authority and calling an infectious disease an occupational hazard. As I said, it has not been my view that the courts have been friendly to public health since 1905, when vaccination was found to be, in the case of Jacobson versus Massachusetts, something that 
governments were able to impose. In fact, that makes the parallels somewhat stronger because government regulation of tobacco has largely been around taxation and not so much about restrictions, although there were restrictions on youth smoking. And so in many ways, the inability of many governments to mandate vaccination in the U.S. at this point are somewhat similar to the efforts with tobacco and equally poorly effective. So given the history of tobacco as a public health threat, what do you see as the short and maybe longer term results of what we're trying to do against COVID-19? I think in the short term, we know that there is a small subset of about perhaps 15% of the population when polled who under no circumstance would consider taking a vaccine, particularly one required or requested by government. And so there will be a reservoir of people subject to infection and sourcing of infection unequally distributed across the states that we're simply not going to be able to get to with information who simply distrust anything done by government, industry, and experts. I think what we have to work on in the long term, and this is part of an educational process, is communities, schools, young people who aren't biased by the current political, hopefully there are such people, political stresses in society who really want to do socially good and beneficial things and make public health, whether it's vaccines and smoking or other negative health behaviors in terms of nutrition and obesity, we need to persuade them to be our advocates, not just major industry and the media companies. Thank you very much, Barry, for joining us today. And thank you, as always, Eric and Lindsay.